Welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast with Joe Lavelle and Dr. Glenn Winkle. On today's episode, number 57, we are joined by Tom Bell, the UK hill climb national champion, who was also a cycling performance consultant who, with his wife, Dr. Emma Wilkins, owned High North Performance, a coaching company based in the UK. I asked Tom to join us today to share his personal and professional tips for getting stronger and performing better in climbing events, as he ought to know. I don't know about you, but since I'm six foot two, 195 pounds, I need all the help I can get. If you want to get faster on your climbs, listen in to my discussion with Tom Bell. And just a word of warning, this episode was recorded in late 2021 in anticipation of being released in early 2022. But better late than never. Let's talk to Tom Bell. Tom Bell, welcome to the Wise Athletes Podcast. I appreciate you taking some time to help us out. Yeah, thanks a lot, Joe. Thanks for uh, having me on the show. Tom, pleasure to have you on board today. Thanks, Glenn. All right. And uh, Glenn, welcome back to the podcast, yeah. my man. A little hoarse, but here I'm, I'm here. Excellent. Yeah. Well, um, for anybody who's been following along with us will know that Glenn has been missing in action for a little bit. Um, more to come on that. Uh, but uh, let's get into our conversation with Tom Bell. Tom, the focus of the Wise Athletes podcast is the older athlete and how they can improve athletic performance today and retain their athletic capability for a long time. For cyclists that live in areas with lots of hills or even mountains, such as in my own state of Colorado, the ability to climb is very important for feeling competent, for just feeling like you can hang with your pals when out on a ride because it sucks when your buddies have to wait for you at the top. <laughs> You, Tom, are the current UK hill climb national champion. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, the national championships were held, I think, about a month and a half ago now. So uh, the final Sunday of October. And uh, yeah, managed to managed to take the victory on that day. Fabulous, fabulous. Congratulations. Nice. I am really happy to have you on the Wise Athlete Podcast to help us with this question of how to be better climbers. Uh, before we dive in, though, Tom, tell us... Uh, a little bit about your background. What, do you, what is it you're doing now and a, a few of your accolades because uh, mm -hmm. I happen to know there are several. Yeah, so I suppose on the uh, athletic side, I've been uh, cycling for, for ages now, um, mostly on the mountain bike side. So I um, worked my way up kind of through the ranks uh, from kind of university. So maybe over the last decade, I would say um up to kind of national level and then into international competitions so the uh uci mountain bike world cup i did uh, uh, participate in some of those races um and then obviously some of the national series races other you know international uh events uh, throughout europe mostly and uh yeah wor worked my way worked my way through the ranks um to in 2017 i managed to take the mountain bike marathon national title um there's essentially two main uh, disciplines within mountain biking. So you've got cross country, which is kind of on a four to five kilometer loop. Um, we might have uh, five to seven laps, uh, so about a 90 minute race. And then the mountain bike marathon discipline is a lot longer. So usually they're three to sometimes six hours uh, of, of racing, wow. uh, typically on a, on a single loop. Uh, so, so a little, little bit different, but both obviously on, uh, you know, off road, uh, and, um, on mountain bikes. So any way you could guess at how many feet of climbing you do in six hours? Yeah, quite a lot. There are some marathon races where they're on sort of flatter terrain. So when they, some of the, uh, world championships that have been held, uh, in, in the recent past have, uh, varied between very, very hilly routes and quite flatter or rolling terrain. So sometimes, yeah. sometimes there isn't actually a great deal of elevation in these races and okay. it ends up being a big, you know, a big group, uh, group based race. And then there's other times where there's, you know, lots and lots of elevation and groups break up and that kind of thing. So I would say, uh, Ooh, you're putting me on the spot. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'd have to check some, uh, some Strava files <laughs> to actually see what, uh, what the elevation was, particularly on uh, in the race in 2017, but I, uh, yeah. it's, it was on the Isle of Man, which is a small uh, small oh. island off the coast of uh, the UK, which is where some cyclists like Mark Cavendish are from, and sure. uh, it's a pretty pretty hilly pretty hilly little island. So I would imagine on that day we did quite a lot of 
quite a lot of climbing. Oh, great. Well, and tell us some more. I, I know that you've got, you've won other national championships and other disciplines as well. Yeah. So I, as I said, uh, mountain bike marathon national champion in 2017, um, I was second, uh, so silver medal in the cross country discipline, which is the Olympic, the Olympic discipline, uh, the, the, the next year. So 2018, and then just recently, as you mentioned, uh, in the hill climb national championships, uh, I managed to managed to take the victory there after having been second the previous year in 2020 by just about one second. So got really oh. close that year, but uh, managed yeah. to do it this year, which was which was really nice. Oh, great! Well, awesome. And and uh, you also are a uh, cycling performance consultant. Yeah. So, uh, so as we just talked about there, that's kind of my athletic side. And then on, I suppose more the career side. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's what I do. I'm a cycling coach, cycling performance consultant, as you said. Um, and we, I run a small, small company with my, with my wife, uh, and we offer coaching services, consulting, uh, and testing, testing facilities as well. The name of that company, High North Performance. Did I get that right? High North Performance. That's correct. Excellent. Well, great. Thanks for that. Uh, let's get into this uh, climbing thing. You know, let me just start by saying, look, as a bigger person myself, it always seemed to me that some people were born to climb and others not. Uh, but I, I believe it's even been true for me, I mean, already, but I believe that for everybody, there are things we can do to be better at climbing. At least uh, I'm pretty sure, and I, I really hope that that's true. What do you think? I agree. I think everyone's got uh, got their strengths and their limiters, and it's just about understanding your own, you know, physiology and your own um, strengths, and doubling down on the biggest areas of opportunity that you know that you can uh, capitalize on. So the training, if you're training for, uh, you know, to be better in hill climbs or, or just climbing in general, it's really about sort of figuring out where you can, you know, where you can get the biggest bang for your buck, essentially, and how you can structure your training to to exploit, you know, the strengths that you have uh, that other people might not have. Right. Well, so as I was thinking about how how we would kind of eat this elephant this morning, let's go through what we think the subtopics are that we will go through, and then um, you can just start tackling them. The the first thing I guess would just be kind of like a training plan. You know, if you wanted to be a better climber, what could you do? Say starting starting in January twenty twenty two. Um, what could you start doing so that by the summer of 2022, you'd be a better climber and maybe you've got, you know, even more like things you could do that would be more than six months of training, you know, years, kind of annual training plans and year over year. Um, the second category, and this is sort of an, a climbing specific one, I, I'm sure that how much weight you carry up a hill is really going to matter. And having really light wheels is just not going to make that much of a difference, at least not compared to, you know, that midsection that um, lots of people are carrying up those hills with them. So the next category would be your thoughts on how can you manage that tightrope of working out hard to get stronger while trying to lose some of that extra weight that keep us from being our best climber self. Um, and then the third thing that I was thinking would be skills. You know, what I'm sure that there are some skills, things to do um, that, you that you should do well that stop you from fighting yourself when you're climbing up these hills. Uh, do those sound like good categories? Did I miss any categories? I think that sounds good. I have, uh, I think I've got plenty to say on, on each of those. So, uh, we can tackle them okay. one by one if you'd like. Okay. Well, what, what order would you like to hit them in? I quite like the order you proposed, Joe, to be honest. So we're uh, happy to Excellent. go, happy to, happy to go with that. Well, let's jump in then. Let's talk about a training plan for 2022 for somebody who wants to be they're going to sign up for some big event that's going to have a lot of climbing in the summer and they want to get better at climbing between now and then. Yeah. So I think whenever we approach, you know, putting together some sort of program for an athlete, we're really looking to understand where that athlete is currently. So 
basically creating like a physiological profile of where they currently stand. Then kind of looking at the demands of the event and trying to understand what the ideal, you know, phys physical performance profile is for that event. And then you can kind of do like a gap analysis to say, okay, these this is the discrepancy between current state and sort of necessary future state, basically. Um, and by understanding, you know, the physiology of that athlete, like we just talked about before, you can kind of pinpoint one or two areas that are going to be the greatest greatest areas of opportunity for that athlete. And those might be different, you know, from athlete to athlete. One athlete, for instance, might have a, a very high maximum oxygen uptake, you know, VO2 max, um, but maybe a, a limited threshold power. And another athlete might be the complete other way around. You know, they might have a limited uh, ability to deliver oxygen, but actually they've got uh, that, you know, they're, they're good in other areas. So the training plan that you would prescribe per athlete would change just based on, you know, their, their physiological strengths and weaknesses. So that, that would be the kind of first thing, um, to, to, to look at. And I do think that that, I mean, that's logical that, that, that it would be different for every person. Uh, but since we don't actually have a person to use as a, a straw man here, that let's just, let's be sure to just talk about th things that you find that are common and issues that people need to work on and then how would they work on them in as a con in the context of this training plan sure so I, I would say it's so as we talked about myself being the the national hill climb champion the hill climbs in the uk are they're basically time trials that you do from you know the bottom of the hill to the top and these hills are usually sometimes on the short side less than two minutes long and sometimes on the on the longer side in the UK, typically they're about 20, 25 minutes at the very longest. Um, okay. So if we're talking about an event, so let's say something like the Hope Route Alps, you know, where there's seven days of lots of climbing, yeah. there would be a different, a bit of a different training program prescribed for someone trying to do hill climb time trials versus a seven day sportive or Grand Fondo, for instance. But as you said, there are there are common sort of staples that you need, I think, to be a good climber in both of those two extremes. And I think yeah. ultimately it's about having a very strong um, aerobic system. So having a good ability to trans transfer oxygen to the muscles and then have the muscles actually use as much of that oxygen that's delivered uh, as possible um, would be, that would be the kind of key thing. And I think that in, in any case, a training program would try to try to maximize that as much as possible. Yeah. So what would you suggest then um, for, you know, I'm going to start on January one and I want to be stronger by June. Yeah. So it obviously, depending on where you live kind of in, in the world, if you're, if you, you know, in January, some, some parts of the world, just, you know, people can't train outside. Some have really nice weather outside. So if, if it was possible, you would typically have uh, athletes riding for, you know, fairly long durations at lower intensities to, to build that aerobic foundation. If you're forced indoors, you know, because of snow and uh, rain and the cold weather, you can, to some extent, get around that by introducing a little bit more high intensity. But I think it's important to kind of realize that you can't always just replace, you know, long duration, low intensity training and the, the adaptations that you would get from that with just lots and lots of high intensity. It, it, it does train different things. And there are, you know, adaptive responses that you get that are kind of exclusive to one mode of training rather than another. So, uh, if you're indoors, you know, a little bit, it's going to be a lower training volume probably and a little bit of a higher intensity, but you're essentially trying to build a foundation of, um, you know, lot, a, a decent volume of training, mostly in the kind of lower intensity, lower intensity domain, yeah. I would say. But the, this base training, I guess, is what we're talking about here. You're saying is important. Um, and, and surely people have access to things like Zwift, um, you know, even if they don't have a smart trainer, they can still get on it. So um, it's just a matter of dedicating themselves, investing the time to be able to to get that. And you're saying that um, the longer duration is important versus the higher intensity in this uh, base building phase. 
Yeah, so base base that you know the term base has sometimes been a little bit you know misconstrued. I think, and it uh, you know people think it does just mean you know purely exclusively low intensity, and I'm not kind of saying that you know really at all. Um, I know you had Steven Seiler on the podcast, um, yeah. and he's kind of the the father of polarized training, you know, which is right. a, a training intensity distribution model that's you know been observed in the been observed to be used by a, a lot of the world's best endurance athletes so i think having still having uh, an intensity distribution a little bit like that where you have some you know some high intensity but the the, the majority of the time is is below that threshold at a lower you know a lower intensity um that is just good good training generally to build the you know the foundational fitness that you need to then you know build on as you get closer to your your target event or the the climbs that you're wanting to do you know we're talking about you know mitochondrial density uh, capillary density and just being um a little bit better at kind of fat fat oxidation and all these all these things that lay a good foundation for you to then add you know more specific potentially higher intensity training on top of yeah and is there anything that's off the bike that would be a part of this training plan i mean should anybody be working on, um, you know, doing some muscle building in the gym, uh, as a part of an effort to be a better climber. Yeah, absolutely. I would say, uh, strength training for instance. So both maybe core based and more sort of heavy load resistance training is, is a good thing. Um, especially in that, that sort of earlier phase of the season. Um, if we're talking, you know, if, if we're talking on a, a fairly regular periodization kind of strategy so um the training being a little bit more generalized the further out you are from from the event and then the training getting a bit more specific potentially you know higher in intensity the closer you get you know that that period at the start of the year or the start of the preparation is a really good time to do again to build that foundation and part of building that is to is is having you know strong strong musculature and uh, that's a great time to start doing uh, different forms of strength training and uh, a good way to maybe get around not being able to to ride the bike for long durations outside is to do some some other cross training. So maybe running, some hiking, that kind of thing. You know, it doesn't need to be hyper specific, I don't think, at that very early stage of the preparation. Oh, well, that's handy. I mean, that matches up well with the weather. Yeah. And I heard you mention uh, core strengthening uh is there something about climbing that is that requires more core strength than not climbing i would say so yeah um i, I think core strength is good like any kind of strength training really um, as an injury prevention tool so you know uh you can get certain certain injuries like maybe knee pain or hip pain you know if you're doing doing lots of climbing so a, a good foundation of core strength i think is good just to ward off ward off injuries but also it, it helps with that kind of power transfer as well because um quite a lot of the time you know a lot of athletes when they're climbing are stood out of the saddle you know they're not sitting in the saddle and then that so their pelvis for instance is not not as well supported as if as if they were sat you know sat down on the saddle um yeah. so having having a good core strength can help with that as well and just just mean mean that you're sort of more efficient and you you can produce more power you know from that from having a strong 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 core well that's interesting i i know from personal experience that if i am not training out of the saddle then I can't stay out of the saddle for very long. Uh, so there's there are some muscles, uh, and I don't even know where they are, but there are there's some musculature, some muscle adaptation that comes of just being out of the saddle that I I need to do in order to be able to stay out of the saddle and be able to take the advantage of putting my full body weight down into my pedal strokes and and whatever other benefits you know, moving the effort around my musculature, uh, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. It's, uh, as you said, a, one benefit of standing out of the saddle is using more of your body weight to, you know, generate torque on the pedals, which torque combined with uh, rotational velocity is where you get the power from. Uh, so yeah, it can be uh, really helpful, really helpful in that regard. And you're totally right that when you, when you don't, uh, when you're not familiar with riding out of the saddle, it can be, uh, can be a bit strange and it can, you know, you can feel quite fatigued quite quickly, um, as opposed to someone who sort of rides out the saddle all the time. That might even feel, 
you know more natural to them than actually sitting in the saddle so it's uh it, it's interesting that kind of how yeah. that how that works out so should people include that i mean so they're going to ride on zwift for doing their base miles but should they be including building up more more longer and longer times out of the saddle just getting used to standing and and whatever muscles it requires to to be able to do that get those built up yeah again i think it comes down a little bit to to that athlete's you know profile and that kind of athlete's makeup so actually um i think if you're a lighter weight rider it actually benefits you to to ride out the saddle because you can just use as much of that weight you know as possible to to push on the pedals even though you might not you know have a great deal of it but if you're a lighter weight rider you'll tend to not have as much muscle mass so uh you, it's it's sometimes harder to sit in the saddle and generate that that kind of you know those big power outputs if if the musculature is uh you know a little bit a little bit smaller for instance so uh actually it might work better for a heavier athlete to to stay sitting in the saddle so that they're not having to support all of that body weight kind of through their arms and and through the legs but for for maybe a lighter weight rider it, it might be more beneficial for them to spend longer time you know longer amounts of time out the saddle when they're climbing both from a training perspective as well as when they're doing their event when that yeah, involves yes. a lot of climbing yeah i would say i would say so yeah okay great great Trying to summarize a little bit here, we've talked about a lot, but the, in terms of the training, you're saying more general at the beginning and more specific toward the event. We want to have some intensity in there. Uh, we want to have maybe more lower intensity, longer duration type work, building up the ability to burn fat, uh, build up our mitochondria early in the, the training plan, um, and then more intensity uh, i'm i'm not sure if i'm remembering correctly was it more intensity as you got closer to the event yeah so what i'm describing here is a sort of what's called a linear periodization model um, and there are various different sort of periodization structures or frameworks you could you could use and again it's going to some some athletes might favor one or the other and might just be for some reason uh, physiologically inclined to to be better in in one regard rather than another but um i think that's generally you know we're talking about a, a general recommendation here i think that's you know getting getting more specific to the to the event to the, to the demands of the event the closer you get to it and i think because we're talking about climbing and maybe in a in a race or event situation increasing that intensity um as you go is uh, is going to be a good thing so what might happen to the volume is you might you know, that volume might be at a kind of medium volume in the winter, especially if you're indoors. And then kind of as the spring, summer, or just the good weather comes around, that that volume and the intensity can kind of come up into the middle of the year. And then typically as you get closer to like a gold event, for instance, you would taper, maybe taper that volume off slightly, maintain the intensity, and then right before the event, just try and reduce uh, the duration of the rides a little bit, little bit further just to just to make sure you've not got any fatigue sort of in the way of you producing a top performance. Great. So I, I'm the one thing that is still sort of um, bouncing around in my head here, and I'm not sure what the answer is. If the the climbing quote unquote event is going to be like what maybe in Colorado we'd call hilly, mm -hmm. where it's going to be like a bunch of two minute efforts, then your ability to be able to use your anabolic, your glycolytic system, you know, your fast twitch muscles to really power you up these short efforts. Uh, that seems like that's something that would be really important. But if instead what you're doing are 30 minute, one hour continuous pushes, then uh, being able to go really hard for two minutes doesn't do you much good because now you got another 28 minutes that you got to keep going and now those muscles are are tired out and uh, you got to figure something else out so what would be the difference would you say in in a kind of training for such things yeah so so i guess on the extreme of what i'm doing i'm you know i'm doing uh time trials up up hills that are just a single effort so there's not even really a uh, repeatability 
you, you know you don't really need a great uh, repeatability or a low fatigue index for the for these events you just need to be able to go kind of hard once uh, and yeah. produce a really good effort there then as you said there's there may be courses where they're they're short climbs but they're coming one after the other and they're kind of you know as much as much as, as the power you know that you produce as you go up them is important it's also you know that quick recovery so that you can do it again and again as i say with a low fatigue index is quite important and then you've got maybe on the other extreme like some alpine climbs or something in you know places like colorado where there's maybe some longer climbs that go 30 minutes plus um and you're right. So as the as the training gets, as I was talking about, the training getting more specific as as you get closer to that event, that's yeah. that's where you would start to transition the train to reflect more what you're going going to actually be doing uh, in the race. So for one person training for very long climbs, that might involve some, you know, some some longer efforts, some less glycolytic efforts, and then for for someone on maybe my side that's just doing a three minute all out effort, then then maybe the uh, the the very shorter shorter you know the much shorter punchier efforts are a are a better thing for them for them to be doing. All right. Well, so um, anything else before we uh, shift into talking about weight management? I think I, th- I think that's that's most of what I'd say. I, I think just the the kind of key point is that there's no kind of one size fits all approach, and there are even even though the training is is looking to get more specific to the demands of the event, it's still about understanding how what what that athlete can do, you know, for them individually to train best for those for those events. So sometimes even if they're training for a three or four minute climb sometimes doing very short efforts isn't it might not be the right way to go for that athlete if they're very glycolytic already and maybe they have you know they actually need to be more you know more aerobically strong for those for those efforts the training might not always reflect what they're actually doing in the race so if that sorry if that confuses things but uh just just a bit of a general point that um the right approach is going to be a bit bit of an individualized puzzle to figure out i think Sure, sure. Okay, so let's talk about this business of managing your weight, which becomes all the more important in these climbing type of activities. And trying to shave weight off of your equipment is something that's probably already been done. And there's just not much to be gained there, certainly not compared to the amount of excess body weight that generally a person carries around with them. Still, it's hard. I know from personal experience, it is hard to lose weight while exercising hard and trying to get stronger. So, um, can you help us with this? Yeah. So again, drawing on what what I've been doing, sort of in the UK hill climb season, there's um, obviously in the in the sort of professional road races, you have UCI weight limits for the equipment. So a bike has to be um, six point eight kilos as a minimum. Whereas uh, our our events are governed by a governing body called cycling time trials, which are not you know part of the UCI, so there's there's no weight limit on the bike. So one of the interesting things about the uh, UK hill climb scene is how people mod mod their bikes and uh, actually get them down to you know ridiculous ridiculously low weights that you don't you typically see you know with uh, yeah. you know riders riding out on the road day to day. Um, so for instance, they can go below sort of five kilograms, sometimes four and a half kilos, uh, for, for a bike. So in that specific domain, there is some kind of, you know, severe weight reduction in the bikes, but I think the point stands that, um, most people have more to lose, you know, from optimizing body composition as opposed to, uh, changing stuff on the bike. So, uh, you know, drilling holes in their 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 uh, rims or something crazy absolutely <laughs> crank crack you know chain rings uh you you often see chain rings with uh holes drilled in them uh, <laughs> in the uk hill climb scene yeah funny so then in terms of just managing this this business of what you eat when you eat i mean you've got if if you're not eating less than you're burning then you're not losing weight if you're not eating enough food to recover from your exercise, then you're not recovering and getting stronger. So how do you manage this tug and pull, this this uh, seesaw of 
I'm trying to lose weight over time, but I'm also trying to make sure I recover and get stronger from my workouts so I can get stronger on top of that over this period of time so that I'm actually stronger six months later. Yeah, absolutely. I think you really need to pay attention to is is any weight reduction or improvement in body composition actually helping performance? Because there's some athletes that could that, you know just focus on the weight loss, for instance, um, and I almost forget that they're doing that in servitude of higher performance. Um, you know that the lowest weight possible or the you know lowest amount of body fat possible isn't isn't necessarily the goal. You're trying to strike that balance of finding what's optimal to for performance and also to understand that you know if you're training for a specific event trying to get the weight to a certain level isn't going to be something that you want to you know then try and maintain through the rest of the year or or think is is something that's maybe you know healthy you know as a as a baseline so sometimes you do you can push it a little bit for a for a specific event or for for it, for example the hill climb UK hill climb season which is about 2 months long so not not particularly yeah. not particularly long but um you've really got to pay attention to things like your uh, power to weight ratio and uh make sure that first of all that your your general health is good and that you're not pushing things too you know too far for too long in that regard but also just making sure that your power to weight ratios are going in the right direction uh and and you know any weight loss isn't actually causing a correspondingly you know big drop in power for instance and that watts per kilogram is potentially going in the wrong direction so i guess people should track i mean they they can get on the scale and they can also track their power output in their workouts and so they'd like to see that well, ideally that the power is going up and the weight is going down. And so the power to weight ratio is going up pretty well in that situation. Um, you know, and I think that in, in with our audience here, we're, we're not talking about people that are at 10% body fat, you know, or less. You know, we're, and we're talking about normal people. So, you know, people who are, you know, in the 30% body fat, you know, maybe as low as 20% body fat. And so there's plenty to lose, but still the, the body doesn't like losing it, even when there's plenty to lose. So it can be counterproductive to try to lose too much too fast while I'm trying to exercise. You know, it's very stressful on the body. So now maybe I'm not sleeping well anymore and I'm not recovering. And so now I am getting slower on the bike. I am losing weight, but I'm getting slower. So, you know, it's not working out for me. Any thoughts on, and I, I don't know whether, you know, you've got experience in, in uh, advising people in this kind of group uh, or, or whether it would even be different from just what, you know, you might do for yourself when you're trying to do the same thing. You're trying to get, keep your weight down or get it down ahead of the season, but you're also trying to keep your power up. How do you manage the load of work vis-a-vis -vis the, the amount of calories or even the type of calories that you try to do at different times, you know, around your workouts to try to walk this tightrope. Mm. Yeah. Well, you alluded to there that, you know, nowadays we've got good ability to track all these different things. So it's quite, quite easy, you know, relatively easy to track uh, power output. Now it's also, you know, there's lots of apps and lots of ways to, um, to, to track kind of body composition or calorie intake, for instance. So I think a good, a good thing to do is just to, you know, I wouldn't necessarily recommend, you know, tracking calories, you know, all the time. I think, sometimes that can lead you it can be quite easy to be led down a path of kind of disordered eating and, and 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 being a bit too extreme with that but I think it is good for a period of time just to track you know what you're what you're eating on a fairly habitual basis and um you know just understand because sometimes you, your mind can be quite selective when you're trying to you know think back to what you, what you eat and it it may be forgets or selectively forgets uh, certain things sure. that aren't that aren't optimal so i think if you can honestly track your your intake for a, for a little period of time and get an idea of what that what that typically looks like you can then start to identify you know little li little things that you can um th that you can take out of the you know take out of your eating maybe coming up to an event that uh, that won't have a, a detrimental impact on your performance but would be just enough of a reduction in calories to just you know tip that energy balance um, in in favor of a bit of weight loss, so that you can do it you know conservatively and sustainably, 
without it compromising general health and and performance. Yeah. Do you have any specifics around timing of what kinds of things you eat around workouts? You know, like if somebody's doing a hard workout three days a week, um, uh, or or let's just say two days a week. So in this early season, we've said it's going to be more long, lower intensity work and a little bit of high intensity. You know, but if they're they're not exercising a lot of hours every single day, then maybe they don't need to have the same amount of calorie intake every single day. Is the heavier calorie intake before the longer ride or after the longer ride? Um, and, and any kind of uh, differences in uh, like macros, like fats and carbohydrates and proteins that um, come to mind? Yeah, I think I think one phrase that kind of sums it up is uh, fueling for the work at hand. So uh, if if you need, you know, if the certain efforts that you're doing in training require, you know, a lot of uh, carbohydrate, you know, a glycogen fueled, you know, a, a glycogen pathway, then um, you know, increasing the intake of carbohydrates before that kind of session is is a good way to go. And then there are going to be other you know, other uh, training modalities that are and different training intensities that don't need as many carbohydrates. And maybe, you know, you can periodize uh, your nutrition in that way and actually, you know, fuel for for the demand of the training. So you can, you know, adjust adjust the macronutrients in that way. Uh, and, and as you said, say, okay, I need maybe more uh, higher calorie intake on these these days where I have these priority training sessions. And then on other days, um, you know, maybe I can get away with uh, with eating a little bit less, so the the, the calorie uh, intake can can vary a little bit day to day based on how much you're actually burning. But I think it's important to also realise that you know after these intense sessions, the body still needs plenty of fuel to be able to recover and you know do all that. Uh, you know, the, the adaptive process needs to happen as well. So um, so there's there's a balance to be struck as always. Sure, sure. And what about protein? Is there, I mean, do you, uh, like, do you personally, uh, do you advise people to get a certain amount of protein when they're they're exercising um, and trying to get stronger? Well, I, I, w- I would say I'm not uh, a nutritionist sort of by trade. My, my wife has, uh, you know, got a, a master's in uh, sports and exercise nutrition, so she, she might be a better place than me to talk about it. But um, uh, I, I would say, you know, pro- protein shakes and protein drinks are generally good for, you know, convenience. So if you haven't got access to, you know, a proper meal or, or regular food after a session, for instance, if you go yeah. to the gym and then you've got a long, long drive home, I think, I think that that kind of solution is, is really good. Um, but, but generally I think you can get most of what you need from a, a, a normal meal that you would have sort of on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, if you, if you okay. think about it a little bit, um, and obviously you, you do want to make sure that in general, your, your macronutrient balance is, is, optimal or, or good for what, the type of training that you're doing and the training load right. that you're trying to achieve. All right. Well, let's shift into then skills. And I'm not sure exactly what we're going to talk about here. You'll know, but are we talking about like pedaling techniques and how to sit on the saddle to make sure you're using your glutes and, you know, when to stand up or, you know, are you heel down or, you know, things, you know, these are just some various things that I've read over the years, but tell us, what sort of skills should we work on for being better climbers? I think one of them potentially might be, as we've talked about before, um, you know, s- seated skills versus uh, standing. So um, being efficient in both of those positions. Um, I think uh, a good a good pedaling technique is always helpful. You know, an efficient kind of round round pedal stroke rather than a kind of jerky motion is just it goes without saying that that's going to be a, a more efficient, you know, way to climb. So just emphasize being smooth in the pedal stroke. Yeah, pretty much. Not pedaling squares. That's it. I think, I think you've summed it up quite well there. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what else? So, so if, if you are climbing out of the saddle, obviously when you're sat in the saddle, you know, you're fairly fixed to the bike, your arms aren't moving around too much. Obviously you want to limit kind of, upper body but you know excess upper body motion which might again be just using using energy that's not directly transmitting into you know powering the bike forward um and then i think trying to 
trying to climb out of the saddle in an, in an efficient way by, you know, maybe throwing the bike around rather than your body weight is, is a good way to go. Um, again, it's all really, these techniques are, are essentially improving your efficiency or economy. So minimizing, you know, fuel and uh, oxygen cost so that, so that you have more to actually put into power in the bike rather than wasting it with, uh, you know, excess movement and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so let's talk a, a, a bit about, um, the, the, when you're seating seated on the bike, um, I have always, I read and always found it to be true that if I shifted back further on the saddle when I was climbing, that that helped. I mean, is that is sort of a generally true thing? Why is that? It's a good question. I think that's probably, a, a, again, more, more of like an individual thing. So I know there are certain certain riders who actually like to sort of sit right on the nose of the saddle and sometimes feel like their their weight is, you know, ahead of the, the bottom bracket of the bike. Um, and so they can sort of almost push backwards and push the bike, you know, I suppose it's like pushing the bike behind you, which propels you forward. But but there mm. are just, you know, there are other athletes, like you said, that um, that find just sitting back in the saddle, maybe that maybe that, uh, opens up the, uh, you know, opens thing, opens certain body angles up a little bit. Um, and if, depending on that athlete's biomechanics or certain, you know, physiology that, that might be beneficial to them. So it's probably, again, that's probably a little bit, there's probably quite a lot of inter-individual difference in that regard. So people should just try different things and, uh, and maybe there is even some idea, which I have noticed more in climbing, than than in other situations on on the bike that I'll tire out with one position on the bike. But if I move, I'm now using different muscles or I'm using the same muscles differently. And now I have I, I find energy. So maybe in climbing there is a, a, a strategy of move around periodically, you know, whether it's on the saddle or in the saddle, out of the saddle to spread things around. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think uh, I think there are certain styles. So w when I say styles, I mean kind of seated versus standing primarily that suits different types of climbing more so than others. So I think seat, you know, staying seated in the saddle and actually having, you know, your body weight supported by the bike and by the saddle is generally a more efficient way to climb. But but if you're tackling a very very short hill where you're trying to put out, you know, as much power as you can for for four to five minutes, you're not really concerned too much with efficiency and economy. It's just the best way, the best way to produce the most power that you can. So certainly yeah. tailoring the the technique or the style for the type of climb that you're doing, I think is a good way to go. So so to generalize, I think a, a longer climb, maybe where the gradient isn't so severe, then staying staying in the saddle most of the time, maybe just getting out the saddle here and there to, as you say, use you know, use some different muscle, use some different muscle fibers, uh, you know, rest certain, certain areas of the body, um, could be a good thing. And then maybe for those shorter, punchier climbs where you're really trying to get up as fast as possible, uh, standing out of the saddle and put maybe using the arms for, for leverage as well, uh, is, is a good way to, to climb for that, for that type of terrain. And when standing up, is there, any sort of like uh, you know best practice related to like trying to get you know your upper body more upright as opposed to like bent over like you might in a out of the saddle sprint uh, elbows in you know things that, different things that I've heard can you speak to that yeah as as I said uh, previously I think throw you know throwing the moving the bike underneath you with with your arms more so than keeping the bike steady and you know rocking your body side to side I think is a general kind of good practice um you know the bike's a lot lighter than your your body so it's just easier to do that and I think more more efficient um yeah. yeah and and then you could again you can use the arms a little bit more as well if you need you know a little bit more leverage um Again, I think maybe the the torso angle and you know how how high or low low that is is probably a bit of a personal preference as well, just based on the athlete's kind of um, uh, flexibility and uh, you know mo maybe mobility at the hip might might influence that. Um, I think generally you want to to 
minimize you know upper body upper body movements you know bobbing around for instance um and probably using a lower cadence i would say when you're standing so that your you know your pelvis isn't having to do so many kind of uh, you know so many movements uh and, and potentially is more stable just maybe right. at a 70 rpm versus versus 100 rpm where the, the latter so, one may be more so more, uh, so people ought to shift into a bigger gear before they stand up I think people naturally do that, yeah, but that would generally be, be my recommendation. Obviously, as you said, if you're used to sitting in the saddle the whole time and working with cadences maybe more around the, the 90 RPM, then standing up might feel a little bit alien. But I think as you do it more and more, uh, you get used to that that lower cadence and that uh, that that style where you're standing and supporting your body weight uh, yourself rather than it being supported by the saddle. Okay. And um, like breathing, do you, do you have any advice on breathing techniques? I mean, do you, do you uh, focus on belly breathing or um, nasal breathing or, you know, having kind of a breathing cadence where to try to make sure you're not breathing too much, uh, you know, any breathing tips? Well, I think, I think respiration is a, uh, is an area that, potentially a lot of cyclists don't really think about, but it can definitely be a limitation um, for climbing performance. You know, it's if we talk about VO2 max or aerobic capacity being a, uh, a strong sort of uh, factor of climbing performance, obviously you need to get as much oxygen out of the atmosphere into the lungs as you possibly can. Uh, and there are cyclists who are, you know, limited in a respiratory capacity. Um, there are tool, you know, training tools that you can use. So there are, um, different things on the market, different tools on the market that can train the respiratory muscles. So both um, inspiratory and, you know, ex expirate, expiratory, uh, you know, muscles that, that help with that. Um, Power Breathe being one of them, a famous famous one that's been used by actually quite a lot of the mountain bike teams called Spyro Tiger, um, where you can essentially go through short workouts where you're, uh, where you're training those respiratory muscles. So, Athlete to athlete, some some athletes maybe have more of a respiratory limitation than others, and it might that again might actually be one of those big areas of opportunity that an athlete who's very limited in their respiratory capacity could actually work on and improve something like their VO two max, which would then directly help them as you know in their climbing. So this would be a like a device you would put in your mouth, and it would limit the amount of air you could breathe in or push out. And so it, it, it makes you work harder to breathe in and breathe out. And that's where you're getting this extra exercise of your breathing muscles, which then over time gets stronger. I'm, am, am I reading that right? That's pretty much it. It's, uh, you okay. know, talking about the power breathe device, just, just as an example, that is kind of like a spring. You can control the, the resistance on the spring and then you've got to, um, essentially, uh, use enough muscle mass to open the open the valve so that you know you can you can uh, breathe basically. So it uh, it trains those trains those muscles in a resistance way. So it's a bit like strength training for those muscles. Yeah. you know, involved yeah. with the respiratory system. Well, I guess another thing you could do is just breathe through your nose. That would have the same sort of effect of not being able to breathe in as much or out as much, and you've got to push, pull in, and push out harder. Yeah, that's 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 a way that some 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 athletes do train in that way. Certainly, nose breathing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that was sort of the um, end of what I had hoped we would talk about. Is there more that you would talk about in terms of uh, technique or skills that uh, people should bake into this uh, training plan that they might start on January one of twenty twenty two, and uh, in order to be a better climber for the summer of twenty twenty two. I think I think as a as a general prescription that uh, that that would kind of cover most of it. Um, obviously, I'm uh, with being a performance consultant. More, we're more on the sort of physiology side, so so looking at you know power numbers and uh, and some of the data that we can get from testing. Um, so yeah. we use you know some some different devices like um, that measure sort of muscle oxygen saturation, and you can look at you know. Uh, the athlete's VO2, VO2 max and lactate threshold and all, all of these things. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think ultimately, just to repeat what we said before, is um, everyone's going to be a bit different. Everyone kind of has to look at their individual strengths and limiters and then 
look at what look at the type of climbs that they're actually preparing for, whether it's something that's very short and punchy or something something longer and potentially over multiple days. And that will that will affect kind of how that how that training evolves. Awesome. Tom, that was very helpful. Thank you, sir. Before we uh, wrap up here, could you tell our audience how they should find you if they had more questions or they wanted to follow up with you somehow? Yeah, so as we as we mentioned at the start, our uh, company is called High North Performance. The the uh, website is uh, highnorth.co.uk, and there's a contact form on there, uh, so you can easily oh, get in touch with us via that. And uh, I should be fairly easy to find on Instagram and some of the other uh, social media uh, social media Fabulous. channels. Well, I'll get those links in the show notes uh, for anybody who wasn't able to take notes, and then they'll be able to find you that way directly. Tom, thank you very much. Um, before we Wrap up, uh, Glenn, uh, did you want to add anything? Not really. He's covered quite a lot of bases there. Um, <clears throat> my course is still here. but um, you, you are not a big man, but I have never thought of you as a climber. I know I've just seen you on the track and, and you, you know, doing crits all the time. Why aren't you a climber or are oh, you? I, I climb a lot. I mean, I've done very well. I won the, the World Championship Hill Climb back in 91. So I've done I've done my ah, fair share of climbing. Just, amazing. I don't. Um, I, let's say I like climbing, but I like crits better. I like track better. That's all it is to uh, it. You know. So okay. Yeah. So personal preference, not physical limitations. No, no, no. I, if I want to get a, a great viewpoint, I go climb a mountain and then fly down the other side. I didn't used to like climbing in the beginning because it was hard work, you know. And but once I figured out, in order to go down fast, you have to get up. That's why I started to enjoy climbing. So I got to enjoy the descent. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, the descents are always well, nice. Uh, that, that's, of course, the only time I ever think I'm definitely going to die is when I'm flying down a mountain. <laughs> um, but it is very exciting. Oh, yeah. Well, all right, gentlemen, you guys have a great day. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Jay. Right. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Thank you so much for listening in to our discussion with Tom Bell about tricks and tips for climbing at your full potential. You can find more information about Tom and his company in the show notes. While you're there, you can sign up to take a free fitnesses practices assessment, send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you're on social media and enjoyed this episode, please post about it. That'd be a great help. Thanks again.